four chapters. And that's ten messages where there was a malfunction. In John 4, uh, we just got through preaching about take Jesus at His word. The royal official took Jesus at His word. There was instantaneous faith there. The Greek even speaks about that in the way that the sentence is formatted. And then when He went on His way, He went on His way in obedience to the word. Well, what a great theme. If you don't remember anything else from that message, remember that you hear God's word and there should be faith there to believe that it's true and then act like it's true. And when you do that, you see miracles in your life. Now we're going to pick up in John 5. John 5 starts with this phrase. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now, I've covered this a bunch, but I, like every teacher, I want to repeat things. I want to make sure you're getting it. Why would the Bible say he went up to Jerusalem? It's elevated. Why else? In Jewish thought, anywhere you are in the world is below Israel, is below Jerusalem because you have to ascend to there because it's where God has his throne. Does that make sense to you? It's a spiritual journey. Aliyah, uh, which we would naturally determine or define as coming home, really speaks of going up to Jerusalem. From anywhere you are, you have to ascend to get to Jerusalem because it's somehow closer to God in their thought. That's because it was a teaching tool. So, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. There is a great amount of debate among people that uh, study the preciseness of the text and argue about manuscripts and those kind of things over whether this, this says the feast of the Jews or a feast of the Jews. They said, well, what difference on earth does that make, right? Well... The reason some of these arguments get to be important in some people's minds is, how long have you been taught Jesus' ministry was? I mean, what have you heard all your life? Public ministry, three and a half years. Well, there are three distinct times in John that a Passover is mentioned. How often is Passover? Once a year. Well, if you start with one and you go to the second, that's one year. You go to the third, that's two years. So you begin to have a hard time to put together three years just from the book of John if there's not more than three Passovers mentioned, right? Well, John doesn't fit really well with all the rest of the Gospels in his chronology anyway. Some some don't mention Passovers at all. John mentions things that don't occur anywhere else. Most Bible theologians say that this feast, because of all of the other events that happen, are a Passover and that there are not three mentioned in John, but four. And I've been saying that incorrectly. I've been thinking of the three years of Jesus' ministry, the three years that are the three Passovers that are actually mentioned, John 2, John 6, and then the end of John. Uh, there, there are probably four, okay? But in any case, without arguing what feast this is, and without getting into all of the, I guess I can say minutia, that's a nice word that sounds like a dirty word, but... Without getting into all of those bitter details about arguments over pronouns and all, what do you know about the Feast of the Jews? There are at least three that God said every man in Israel must go to Jerusalem for. What are they? Atonement. Passover. Not atonement. That is true atonement, but they lumped it together. With tabernacles. What's the other one? What is every other in gathering, which is Pentecost? Three times a year, 
And the reason I said they lumped it together is the feasts were, were grouped together. So when you refer to Pentecost, you're also referring to feast right around it. Same with Passover. Passover and Feast of First Fruits occur at the same time. So three times a year, they had to go up to Jerusalem. That means that what we are going to read here occurred in front of every male in Israel that was obedient to God's Word. It's really important that when you look at the way that Jesus did miracles, when He did miracles and all, He didn't do these in some back corner. I mean, He waited till the most public event of His day to do these. And these are, I say He waited. That, that's not really true. Remember last week when we looked at a prophet has no honor in his hometown and that principle? John didn't even go in to explain all the detail that happened because at the end of John, he said, man, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, I suppose that the whole world wouldn't contain the books. But what John did choose to write down were the most public of public miracles, things that could be authenticated, things that could be verified. You know, if the Bible says he healed a dead widow's son from Nain and you go find Nain on a map, we're talking about a place that... If a dead woman's son had been raised from the dead, you could still go talk to people there. It's not like hiding in Los Angeles. Somewhere in Los Angeles, no, this was more like saying in Bunky, Louisiana, <laughs> this happened. You follow what I'm saying? So this is a time in Israel's uh, yearly calendar where everybody is crowded into Jerusalem. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, it's neat because I read some commentaries about this pool, right? The commentaries were written in a time period when Israel was not yet a nation, when you didn't have the kind of access to Jerusalem and archaeological digs that you do today. I have actually been and stood in this place and looked at this pool. I mean, and you could go there too. All you got to do is get on a plane and go to Israel. You can go there and see it. And guess what? There are five archways that are colonnades right around where the pool would be. There's a two-tiered pool, actually. But these commentaries were theorizing about whether or not it actually existed. You know, because they were written in the 1700s. Well, we've lived long enough to see that they did exist. But this is by the Sheep Gate. Most people think today this corresponds to Stephen's Gate. And I don't know if that means anything to you, but if you look at a map of Jerusalem, there's still gates there today, so you can see. So, get this. We are probably at Passover time. We are next to the Sheep Gate. Now, without any major stretch of the intellect here today, what do you think the Sheep Gate was named the Sheep Gate for? Okay, and it's what time of year? Passover. So what was walking through these gates all of the time? Sheep. Okay, that's where the shepherds would bring their sheep in. And what happened to sheep at Passover? They were slaughtered. And here we are at a place called Bethesda, a pool called Bethesda. Now, if you've heard of Bethesda outside of the Bible, you've heard of Bethesda, Maryland, and a famous naval hospital that's there. I was talking with relatives today about that. And... Uh, you wonder sometimes, how do people choose the names they have? Do anybody know what Bethesda means? House of Kindness is close. No, it's not House of Fishing. It is House of Mercy. That's how about six of the Bible dictionaries translate it. And you can hear Matthew said House of Kindness. 
you can hear kindness, mercy pretty, pretty close there. Okay, the idea is the same. So here we are, we're at Jerusalem at a time of year when all the males in Jerusalem, at the very least, are present in Jerusalem. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. John's writing about it. We're at the place where all the sacrificial lambs are being brought in for Passover and at a pool called House of His Mercy. And there's five colonnades. Now the five, I'm just going to throw in for fun. But what is five always in your biblical studies? It appears everywhere something full of grace happens. Mercy and grace are the same word. It's charis in Greek. Same thing. Mercy gifts, grace gifts, kindness. All of those are, are tied together. Okay? So here we are. We're in Jerusalem. We have passed through the gate where all the sacrificial animals do at a place called the house of His mercy where they will witness the Passover and now they're going to witness something else. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, what you don't have in your NIV Bible is what you you do. You have it in a footnote. Is an explanation that appears in some manuscripts and not in others. And NIV chose to leave it out because they weren't certain that it was a part of the Scripture. But you can tell from context and what I'll read uh, coming that it definitely makes sense. These five colonnades are covered. These were porticos. They were areas where people could gather under to get out of the rain as they were sitting around this pool. Okay? And they still exist there today. I mean, you can go see the ruins of them. In fact, the Catholics built a church over it and they had to dig under the church to find this, but it was still there. So you have five areas surrounding a pool with people all huddled in it, gathering, waiting around a pool for something. One who had been there, or let's see, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, this is a mouthful. I mean, you can take this just at first glance and say, you know, there's a pool there and he wants to get wet. All of the invalids, all of the cripples were hanging around this pool because something had been happening there. This was a time period in Israel's history where from Malachi into Matthew, 400 years of silence, no prophet in the land, no mighty miracles occurring. And yet God had one place that had been known as house of His mercy by the gate where the Passover lambs would come in for Passover. I mean, strategically placed there where apparently an angel would stir the waters. And when he stirred the waters, whoever got in the water first would get healed. And if this had not been going on for a time, why would the people be waiting there for it? Them waiting there is a testimony to the fact that it had been happening. But there's a problem. This guy could see salvation. Salvation and healing are the same thing in the Bible. Same words. He could see salvation, but he was fully aware that he could not get to it. This is not all that different than when you begin to examine Christianity. You start to look around and you start to acknowledge there is a God in the creation. He's working. And I see that He works in Mandy's life, but I can't quite figure out how to get to Him. That's, that's what's going on. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, before we get into the rest of this, get this picture. The guy's been there 38 years. Does it say he's 38 years old? No, no and we're going to find out from something Jesus says to him later. He's got to be much older than 38 years. He has to be old enough to remember what it was like before this ailment came on him. So he lived for a time period, this ailment came on him, and then he was in this condition for 38 years. Why would John include that? I mean, Jesus healed lots of people. I mean, sometimes it just says he healed all of the sick who were there. John 2 speaks that way. It said he taught, he did this, and then he healed all of the sick that were there. Why didn't it list their name and their ages and where they were sitting and all of those things? Why list this? John wants you to understand it does not matter how long you have been in the position that you're in. It makes no difference if you will hear the Word of God and be obedient to it. He will bring about a change in your condition. Mm -hmm. 38 years is... We're talking about prison sentences today. Can you imagine if somebody said, I'm going to confine your freedoms to a little cell for 10 years? If you really begin to think about that, can you really even fathom much longer than 10 years? Think about the last 10 years of your life. How about 20? 30? Now here we are almost 40 years. This guy's been in this, this condition. Does he really, can he even fathom what it's like to be in some other condition? No, it's probably a bit of a mystery to him, but he knows he wants out. And here it is. He sees somebody and we're fine. He doesn't even really know who he is. It's just somebody who offered to help. This is like all of the Gentiles, by the way, and this guy was probably not a Gentile. We were a people who were in a land of darkness, so to speak. And we weren't looking for God when we found Him. This guy wasn't looking for Jesus. He was hanging out by a pool of salvation and couldn't get into it. Make sense? Watch what happens. Uh, then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Can anybody in here point to a scripture to me that says you cannot carry a mat on the Sabbath? No. I couldn't find it. I've been reading this Bible all of my Christian walk. I cannot find a scripture that says you cannot carry your mat on the Sabbath. What can you find? Don't work on the Sabbath. And there are some examples. You know, don't tread out wine. Don't bring in your harvest. So where do we get the don't pick up your mat? Man's tradition, huh? When, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now, don't misunderstand this. It's not that he had no idea that a guy had healed him. It's not that he couldn't point him out in a lineup. He'd probably heard about Jesus. He'd probably been excited about one day seeing Jesus because Jesus' fame was beginning to grow. He had no idea that this man was Jesus. It didn't make any difference to him. It was somebody who offered to help. It didn't make any difference whether you call Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, any of the words that you can think of to describe him, if you're crying out to him and looking at him, he helps you. 
This guy didn't understand. Okay? Um, Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Uh, I want to cover a couple topics here. Okay? This is not a terribly complicated message. I want to get into our next Wednesday, death to life. And we don't have time to do it all tonight, so we're going to concentrate on this. The next part of this is death to life. But this message, guy's been there 38 years. John's trying to emphasize, God's trying to emphasize. doesn't matter the position you're in. If you listen to my word and you're obedient, then I can bring about a change. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10, we quote all of the time. I quote it all the time in here. Can anybody quote that? Okay, turn to Ephesians 2. Y'all are killing me. Uh, page 1299 in the Thompson chain. Yeah, as soon as you hear it, you know it. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so it's not by your works you were saved, it's by grace. How do you think that the man at the pool understood that? He couldn't work to get into the water. Every time he tried, somebody else beat him in. The problem with works for salvation, as people often teach it, even in Christianity it's taught, whether we're using sacraments as works, uh, Mother Teresa-like good deeds as works, or some Hindu system of hanging weights on you and bouncing up temple steps, is there's always somebody that will outdo you. You know? I mean, let's be honest here. How many of you have poured gas on yourself and set yourself on fire? There are people that have done that for their God. You know, you remember seeing that in our history books? My father lived through that in Vietnam. I mean, the people did that stuff. So, there is no way to work towards salvation. You just can't do it. I mean, as you look around, there will always be somebody that outdoes you. Now, we tend to focus on it another way. Well, I'm better than him. I may not be as good as them, and his relative morality, right? I may not be as good as so-and-so, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. This guy was put in a unique position. For 38 years, he had become infinitely aware. I mean, it had been impressed upon him. I can't do this myself. He tried constantly, but he never could do it himself. So when Jesus said, do you want to get well? That's a pretty obvious question, huh? He'd been hanging in there for 38 years. Yes, I want to get well. The other part of that is, I just can't do it myself. So Jesus gives him this word, right? And when this guy believes Jesus' word, how do you know he believes it? Because he got up and walked. Here's a picture of salvation you should carry with you all of your life. You can't work to get in the pool. You can't work to get saved. But because you've believed the word of Jesus, you do work. First thing he did was pick up his mat and walk in response to the word. Does that make sense? You can't work to be saved, but because you're saved, you work. If you can't see that anywhere else, you ought to be able to see it in this case. Now, what about this? this but it's on a Sabbath, and when? I can't believe that, and you're violating God's law. What about that? Turn with me to Matthew 15. Let's look at another instance where... By the way, do you think it was a mistake that Jesus did this on a Sabbath? Why didn't He just do it on Sunday? 
Oh, y'all thought Sunday was the Sabbath, huh? No, y'all know better than that. Why didn't He do it on Tuesday? Why didn't He do it on Sunday? Why didn't He do it on Monday? Jesus went out of His way to show something. To show that the traditions of men did not carry any weight with God. His Word was what mattered, not the traditions men had about His Word. He rubbed this in the Jews' face constantly. And when John mentions the Jews, he means the Jewish leadership. And he did this on purpose. These certain people, and they exist today, we have to try not to be them, are more concerned about our tradition than seeing people made well. You ever been sitting next to somebody in church that's done? Not here, hopefully. Yeah, you, you, you ever been... Uh, around somebody at church that it was pretty evident from their dress, their language, all of those things that uh, maybe they hadn't been there that long? Do you treat them any different? Do people around you treat them any different? See, this, this scenario was set up so that all of the people would see Jesus do something that they thought He shouldn't do so that God could teach them it's always lawful to do good. doesn't matter what you think about it. It's law. Can you bring a whore in the church? Well, absolutely. It's always lawful to do something that is good. Can you skip church to help somebody roof their house? Absolutely. It is always good, or it's always lawful to do something good. Look at Matthew 15. Y'all there? Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do you, your disciples, break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. (laughs) Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Can you honestly hear that and not think that that's true of most of what we would call organized religion today? more interested in the rules taught by men than doing the will of God. If that weren't true, instead of all of us being crowded into churches on Sunday, sitting in pews like little ducks in a row, we would be out doing things for God. We're ever learning the precepts of God and never applying. I'm hoping our church is different. We're trying. But I don't want to accept ourselves from, from this teaching. Jesus did this to show people You may have your rules about Sunday worship, or in this case, Sabbath worship. You may have your thoughts about what work is on the Sabbath. I'm telling you, it is always God's will that you do something that is good. Would you rather leave this guy for 38 years in this condition than to break one of your traditions? Because the Word didn't really say you couldn't pick up your mat. Because that's not what God was trying to teach. He was trying to teach there is a day coming. Now get this message, okay? There are six days when a man can work. Okay? Six days where you devote yourself to labor. Labor to provide for your family. Labor for your own interest for the most part. But there is one day in which no more work can be done. Period. 
It's totally a day for the Lord. Now, what might God be trying to teach through that principle? There's a certain time period where you will labor to do the will of God. You will labor to work. And then there's a time period immediately following that where no more work can be done for salvation. You you see that? There was a Sabbath of days, six days and then a, a Sabbath. There was a Sabbath of weeks. There were a Sabbath of years, seven sevens. And in the 50th year, no debts could be kept. All of this was teaching. There is a day when work can be done. After that, it can't be done. Now, should we take that principle that God was trying to teach? There's a time period for work in the kingdom and then no more work can be done. It's either done or not done. Should we take that principle and use that to say, no, Mandy's falling in a ditch, but I'm not going to help her out because it's the Sabbath. But do we do that with our church stuff all of the time? I can't go in there. That's a bar. So what that someone's in there and they need me? I wouldn't be caught dead in there. It's a bar. Oh, I can't be seen with her. Uh, what might people think? You follow how our church rules? From this point on in John, almost every miracle that Jesus does is for the purpose of shoving tradition right in their face. Never breaking God's law, but always shoving tradition right in their face. Turn with me back to John. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Do only people who understand... These are questions y'all can answer. Do only people who understand everything about Jesus, know His kingship, know His millennial reign, know all of His attributes, receive things from God? No. It reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous, the Bible says. In Acts... Paul's teaching of various people groups that he went through said, you know, God's been testifying to you. He gives you your crops in season and out of season. Is it necessary to be saved to receive a miracle? So does it always depend upon your faith? See, this is a real hard scripture for those people that teach it's according to your faith you're healed or not healed. And even though the Bible says that, it does say that. According to your faith, it'll be done to you. But is it always according to just your faith? This guy didn't know who Jesus was. And Jesus healed him. So, should you be surprised? You know, I know only one person in my whole life that was healed of a life-threatening disease and it was verified medically and I knew him and prayed with him and touched him and walked around him and spent time with him in church. And it was AIDS. Uh, A woman was that had her blood and incidentally, Bethesda Hospital was the one that verified that she had in fact been healed. Had her blood before and after. Wouldn't you think she would be like a saint now? I mean, wouldn't you think she would be somebody who was just beyond reproach and out raising the dead and healing the sick? Last I heard she was in jail. Does that surprise you? God does kind things for people that don't deserve it all of the time. He didn't do anything for you because you were a wonderful person. In fact, He came to you because you were an invalid. And He's speaking His Word and to the extent that you're obedient to it, you see miracles in your life. You don't have to understand everything about Him. You know? This works two ways. One is, you don't need to look down on somebody and say, oh, they can never receive from God because they're drunk. And the other is, 
just because you've received something from God, don't think you're all right with it. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, moving on from there. It says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Now, if he's well again, what does that mean? He was well once before. That's why I said this guy had to be older than 38. He had to remember a time period when he was well before. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this, is, this is kind of a hard statement. You remember in John 8, Jesus was going to tell a woman too. He said, hey, go forth and leave your sin. What is the most miserable person on the planet that you can think of? Somebody who knows the truth, who has tasted of the heavenly gift, who has walked in this and has turned from it. Because what the lost have the privilege of doing is knowing at their conscience, uh, searing it, so that every day and every night they're not plagued by the thought that they could be in the kingdom. They don't know any difference. Once somebody has tasted this, though, and then turned away, they're held to a higher standard. What Jesus says to this guy, see, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, is the explanation for Hebrews 6. It's the explanation for all of those scriptures that say, if somebody turns away, it'll be worse for them in the end than the beginning. But here's the message to you. Stop sinning or something worse may happen. You guys have been saved. You've started the work of salvation now. You can't live in your life of sin or it'll be worse than if you never encountered Jesus because you're held to a higher standard. Is that good news or bad news? <laughs> you, I mean, you tell me. I think it's good news because now you have the ability to stop sinning and before you were a slave to it. It's bad news though if you're not obedient to it. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now we had somebody who didn't know who he was who had been there for 38 years that got healed and became a testimony for Jesus. What on earth should we take away from this message? It doesn't matter how long you've been in the position you are, God can do something about it. You need to become aware that you can't work to change your circumstances, but that if you're obedient to the Word of God, your circumstances immediately change and you are able to carry your mat, so to speak, if that's what He told you to do. Uh, that you need to leave whatever sin got you into the trouble that you're asking God to get you out of or to be worse for you than it was in the beginning. That's the basic message of John 5. We're going to close with one more thought and I want to tell you about this next uh, teaching. The next teaching is related to this one. The next teaching begins with the idea that Jesus was working when He did that and He was working on the Sabbath and that God has never stopped working. That Jesus is the whole Sabbath principle is for what I just taught you. And we're going to move into a direct teaching that ties everything I've been saying about Jesus being life and light being life and the whole purpose of the book of John be to move you from death to life. That's our next teaching. I wanted this to... Uh, I couldn't put these both together. And so you got a sermonette tonight. Do <laughs> uh, you have any questions? Let's start there. About John 5 or about any other thing? Verse 6 says that uh, Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He didn't ask him. I meant to point that out. Uh, this is a good example of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was not walking around knowing everything about everyone all of the time. It says that Jesus learned that he had been there for a while. How did he learn? 
Well, I imagine he asked people, hey, that guy over there, how long has he been that way? Oh, man, he's been here as long as I can think of. In fact, you might even infer from this that Jesus basically walked up to the pool and said, who's the most helpless case here? It's a Sabbath and I want to show people something. I mean, that's, you know, kind of like in a movie where, you know, the tough guy comes into town and he says, who's the toughest man in the bar? I'm going to make an example out of him. That's basically what seemed to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we know his disciples are with him because they speak to him later in this chapter. Um, what else? You must have previously told us that it, if this was the house of fishing, and then you said if you go fishing in the sea, humanity, you find people in need. No, that is a message, though. That is, uh, are you boat riding on the Sea of Humanity or are you fishing for men? And this day Jesus was fishing by the pool of Bethesda. So, uh, but I'm, I'm happy you have, have notes that teach you that. And, uh, you know, who knows? Meanings of names are one of those things that, uh, that I, I can tell you that everywhere that I look today, we found House of Mercy. Except Wycliffe. Wycliffe thought it was House of Olives, which is Gethsemane. So I don't know why Wycliffe had that. But, uh, and it, it may stretch into the other teaching, but how old was exactly was this guy? How what? How old exactly was this guy? Was this guy? How old was he? I don't know other than he had to be older than 38. He had to be old enough to be conscious and remember being well before. No, Jesus says says to him, uh, what did he say? See you are well again. So he had to remember. What is your earliest memory? Yeah, seven, eight years old. He had to at least be seven or eight plus thirty eight. Any ups? There's the pool of Siloam inside the walls. Here, there are probably two pools. Uh, each of these pools are significant because what's water represent all of the time in the Bible? It always has to do with cleansing, always has to do with redemption, always has to do with the Spirit. And what I couldn't emphasize enough, and I'm sorry I didn't put this into some preacher presentation for you, but what I couldn't emphasize enough is this pool is stationed right next to the gate where all of the sacrificial lambs are coming in for the purpose of them seeing a house of mercy right here where people can get healed healed, and five special rooms set up for people that need to be healed so they can see the sacrificial lambs coming in and then move into cleansing waters. I mean, if that's not a picture for you, I mean, I don't know what is. I wish it was more of a stretch. I might could make it more climactic than that. Uh, can I get a... Oh, of the gates? Uh, wow. I don't know that I can <laughs> I can name the ones that I know. I think there are about seven gates. There's the Dung Gate. Any guess where, <laughs> where that comes from? Is this, is this gate around the city of Jerusalem? Or around around the, the outer wall. Of, no, none of this is temple. All of this is Jerusalem. Oh. Inside the temple, here's something that's kind of sad. Inside the temple, you couldn't go if you were crippled. Actually missing from the 
about the angels stirring the waters. Yeah, from time to time, I know that there's another place in Scripture, times, times, half the time, where it's yeah. an actual measurement. Three and a half years. Right, to say that. So it's not just a casual, from time to time, does it actually have a, a, a measured meaning of how often an angel would come and, and stir the waters? Now, this is one of those things that... Uh, the early church fathers, and I don't put any stock in what the early church fathers said. You know, it's kind of like the Jewish sages. If I agree with them, I quote them. If I don't agree with them, I, I leave them out. But the early church tradition says that on a weekly basis, this angel would show up and do this. And, uh, you know, that it was something that was pretty well known, but you had to be the first one in the water. And uh, this guy couldn't get there, you know. Uh, so that's... Eusebius and all of those Jew-hating people <laughs> that, that us Americans quote. Uh, yeah, name them. What are they? I know there's, and they're different in Jesus' day than in our day. Right. The, see, you have the sheep gate, they go wearing clockwise. You have uh, a horse gate, uh, fountain gate, refuse. Yeah, that's Dung Gate. Essene Gate. And then around the back side, um, looks like another entrance. But yeah, and see, one of, the, one of the problems, most of the time, you want to know what the gate names are called in the Bible? Uh, because it's different on maps. Let me read the book of Nehemiah. This, this gate was named in the book of Nehemiah, about the third chapter, I think. Uh, because like when you see a, a gate that's called the Essene Gate, there are no biblical Essenes. That's a name that uh, archaeologists have put on it later. We Christians, <laughs> who, who's the first martyr in the Christian church? Stephen. Stephen. So let's take the Sheep Gate and rename it Stephen's Gate. We did that. I didn't do it. Constantine did it. But you follow me? So that's how they changed. But Nehemiah names them according to their function. And I believe there were seven. You remember Paul left out of the Damascus Gate? It was the gate closest to the road to Damascus, so they called it the Damascus Gate. But uh, this was the Sheep Gate. So that's that's all we have for tonight. I hope you're not disappointed with that. And, uh, the rest of John 5, uh, I couldn't emphasize to you enough. I will really study for this, but I've preached on it for about 12 years now. The rest of John 5 really does form the basis of all of my theology. And... I think, forms the basis of the book of John. So, lots of things that we've been saying and I've been taking it for granted that you understood and agreed with me about, Jesus says in John 5, point blank. The whole idea of a resurrection, uh, not being in heaven, all of that is really affirmed in John 5 to me. It's been good uh, learning the, the heart of John and this whole theme of what he's trying to build and accomplish. So when you read... Something that I've had a good time with, the themes that are in the Gospel of John work in all of the epistles of John. And uh, if, if I've told you that light is life, apply it everywhere and see if it works. It does. Uh, this idea about the Sabbath and you work on days and then a day comes when no man can work, Jesus repeats here in just a little while. He says, you know, we need to do this. And I said, why do we need to do it? He goes, because there's only so many hours of daylight and night's coming when nobody can work. And they're, they're scratching their heads just like most of us. He's trying to teach the work of God has to get done in a certain time frame. And if it doesn't, it's not going to get done. You know? uh, and that's true for each one of us too.
So, right, we all stand up. Let's pray.